Hey, this is a special announcement about a film called Stone Locals. It just premiered on August 27th. And if you're thinking to yourself, hey, that sounds like a climbing film, you wouldn't be wrong, but... Okay, you know how this podcast is kind of not really a climbing podcast? This film is sort of like that. It's a film about the soul of rock climbing, and it's told through the lens of five interwoven stories. And I bet you're asking yourself, what does the soul of rock climbing even look like? As climbing continues to grow, the people who anchor its core and community have more responsibility than ever before. In this new film, Patagonia gracefully tells the story of five of these anchors. I don't want to tell you too much, but I, your podcast host, am one of these five stories told. You know how we're always talking about vulnerability? Well, you can't preach what you don't practice. After you listen to this episode, go to the Patagonia YouTube channel and check out the full-length film, Stone Locals. This film is brought to you by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Deuter is known for fit, comfort, and ventilation. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in good fitting backpacks, so you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting Sendy, whether at the crag or in the Alpine. We're working with BetterHelp to connect you to licensed therapists. They'll match you with the perfect therapist for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy. You know who goes to therapy? Prince Harry, Emma Stone, Jenny Slate, Kesha. Therapy is beautiful. Everyone should go to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com slash climbing to sign up and receive one free week. It helps support the show and it helps support you. This podcast gets support from Gnarly Nutrition, one of the leading protein supplements that tastes way better than they need to because they use quality natural ingredients. So whether you're a working mom who runs circles around your kids on weekends or an unprofessional climber trying to send that 513 in the gym, Gnarly Nutrition has all of your recovery needs. The only question you need to ask yourself is, are you a sucker for anything that tastes like chocolate ice cream? Yeah, me neither. Gnarly Nutrition is designed to enhance your progress. And tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. They're rich in repairing ingredients for their skincare collection, are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. This podcast gets support from Appalachian Gear Company, whose alpaca fleece hoodie won the 2019 Backpackers Editor's Choice Award. We've never actually won an award, but this one seems legit. 
The alpaca hoodie offers unmatched breathability, and you can wear it for days in comfort under a pack or harness, thanks to its durability and design. This lightweight, eco-friendly fabric is the sustainable performance piece that you didn't even know you were missing. You can take 10% off your order by using discount code for the love of climbing. Appalachian Gear Company stands by responsibly sourced alpaca fiber and this podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Process. I am your host, Austin Howell. This podcast is brought to you by basically nobody, and uh, for all I know, it probably never will be. I have a job, and uh, I'm just a weekend warrior like the majority of you listening out there, so I'm grinding it out every week in my plastic paradise to get just a little bit stronger and maybe a little bit better in the hopes that I can get it while the getting's good on the weekend to hopefully make something, anything happen. So sit back and hold on tight while we discuss the ins and outs of decision-making while rock climbing. Life is an inherently dangerous sport, and the only safety that any of us have lies within our ability to make competent decisions. Gravity is heavy, and so is the responsibility to come home safely, time and time again. So if you've ever seen someone soloing and wondered, what in the hell was that guy thinking? Or if you've ever wanted a space for frank and honest discussion of risk calculation and mitigation, then you've come to the right place. On June 30th, 2019, climber and friend Austin Howell died after falling while free soloing in Linville Gorge, North Carolina. Austin's love for climbing is hard to capture with words alone, so we flew to Minnesota in the summer of 2019 to borrow some of Susan's. This episode includes what Austin called 17 minutes of rambling that he sent to the podcast before we launched our trailer in 2018. We've previously only shared this audio with Susan. This episode also includes discussion of self-harm around minute 11, as well as an excerpt of Austin's podcast, The Process. Even though his approach to free soloing inspired debate amongst climbers, he himself was an inspiration for a lot of reasons. Austin completed a mile of free solo climbing at Short Off Mountain in Linville Gorge, 15 separate routes ranging from 5'6 to 5'11 for a total of 5,700 feet. Just shy of 2512 free solos, Austin had climbed 19 unique routes, several of them on sites. And in 2015, he climbed Dopey Duck, a 350 foot 5'9 in the gorge, not only without a rope, but without shoes and butt ass naked. His story is complicated, but life is complicated. Austin understood a lot of that. But as the pendulum in life swings both ways, he embraced both its highs and its lows, and especially reveled in the joy that free soloing brought him. This episode is in dedication to our friend Austin and the Howell family. Special thank you to Peter Darmy for all of his help with this episode, and to Wendy Sly from Cater News. 
Austin and I first met when we got rained out of Red Rocks back in February 2015 and we decided to go to Joshua Tree to go and, and climb some scary slab and <laughs> We were checking out the Hemingway area and we were about to climb White Lightning. And all of a sudden I saw this crazy human uh, out of the middle of nowhere just climbing this crack. And he didn't have a rope. <laughs> he had a hat on and a chalk bag. And he just like had the biggest grin and smile on his face. And it was absolutely amazing. I've never seen a free soloist before until then. And it was really odd because I didn't feel nervous when I saw him free soloing. One of the things that I learned from him was Dillygad. <laughs> he would use all these hilarious acronyms and alongside like a Southern drawl. And I lived in Texas for seven years. And when moving up to Minnesota, like I really missed people at the Southern drawl. And he had this perfect Southern drawl. So he would be like, oh, Susan, Dillygath. And I was like, what does that mean, Austin? And he would go, do I look like I give a fuck? You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sort of. This is a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability and talking openly about our pain. This podcast is sponsored by Dirt Bike Climbers. Here's the show. During that time, I was there with an ex-boyfriend, and Austin was an awesome addition. And so we just kind of acquired him, <laughs> and it was kind of the best decision of friendship that I think I've ever had. He was kind of up for any adventure, and I kind of felt right in the beginning that we had a sister-brother relationship. I know there was like one moment where we looked at each other and we were like, maybe, and then it was like, no. So like, by the time we had gone back to Vegas from Joshua Tree, I recognized that, you know, he had different sides to him. He was really super extroverted, but I could also see like some really intelligent introverted side that I wasn't 100% certain of at that point in time. And later on within our relationship, I kind of saw where that grew and where it allowed him to be the free soloist he was. He was able to utilize his ability to be like quiet on the wall with that introverted nature and able to just flourish. Austin and I were fairly close and there were moments where he would share with me about his mental health struggles. And I recall one instance where it was January and he had just moved to Chicago and he was really super low, depressed, he was struggling and he was cutting himself on his legs in the back of him to hide so nobody would see it. At that point, you know, I, re I really did push back on him and I told him he needs to go see a therapist. Um, he, he actually came up to Minnesota after that and I introduced him to a bunch of my friends and I think he had the time of his life. Uh, he told all of his jokes. One, um, I I'll never forget the ending is double the power. And everybody laughed at it, and we had so much fun, and it got him out of his head. And here he was in Minnesota in the middle of a winter, and he was ice climbing with ropes. And I kind of felt like I had a win with that. 
When Austin was doing his podcast, I think he had answered even some of his own life's questions. You know, why does he free solo? And he had started to find a platform in which he could help other people. And I know he did. He would go out of his way to help anybody in his community to be able to become a, a better, stronger climber and also anything that had to do with mental health because I know how he struggled. And I think it also created this amazing community for him to be able to reach out to, but then also for them to reach out to him. And I feel like Austin was pretty open with the community about his mental illness and bipolar disorder. One thing that he would do and he had time for was being able to really help out community. And I wish I could really be more selfless like Austin and be able to have that time for the community and helping out individuals who are asking for help more. One memory of Austin that really stands out to me is the last time he came up and ice climbed back in uh, January of 2019. And <laughs> here's this dude in a hat. <laughs> I made him put on a helmet and he still had the hat on. And he had his Keep Austin Weird shirt on and he's wearing jeans. And the dude could ice climb better than most people <laughs> after seven to 10 years. <laughs> and I know that he knew his own risk um, and, and that day when it happened and I found out, I'll never forget that call and I will never forget the way I felt. I think I spent about two or three days on the couch crying. Um, I ignored my children. I ignored everything. and I'm, I'm not certain if I've ever felt such grief and pain. When it happened, the only thing that I could think in the back of my head was what happened and I did as much research and investigation into every single moment. I talked to Ben Wu who was filming him at Short Off Mountain before he fell and I also found out there was two other individuals who were climbing in Short Off Mountain so I was able to actually speak with Jake and I was able to learn about the events leading up to him falling. And what I found comfort in and closure in was knowing that it wasn't a mania episode. It was not tied to mental illness. And I found comfort in the fact that I knew he didn't want to die. A hold broke off while he was climbing and he just fell. And in those final moments, he had Jake there to be able to just talk to him before he passed away way it gives me closure that he was actually doing what he loved when he died and I really hope someday that we all have those experiences. Like we mentioned, this is an audio clip that Austin sent to the podcast before we launched our first trailer in 2018. The question I asked people was, what is something you personally struggle with within climbing? Please note that there is mention of suicide at minute 23. Mm, okay, here we go. So one thing I've had to deal with in the outdoors is dealing with folks responding to my soloing with what seems to verge on outright hatred sometimes. You know, I guess that's kind of tough for most people, but uh, particularly for me, I've got, uh, you know, bouts of extreme depression and what have you. I've had them ever since I was a kid, so it's kind of like, however much these people on the internet want to throw hate at me, there's 
there's no way it can compare to what I already feel to myself. And there's something that I'm extremely proud of so much that, you know, I just kind of like what I do. I don't think it's super hardcore or anything like that. It's just, <laughs> it's fun and I like it and I want to share that with people. And then I think uh, it was after the uh, the whole naked soloing debacle, one guy actually said that he would laugh if he saw my broken, bloody body at the bottom of a moderate jug hall. That's uh, kind of a fucking thing. And then after another one, there was some guy who said that uh, what I did didn't matter unless I was soloing 512s and 513s. And um, that was kind of interesting because it uh, revealed this sort of undercurrent of elitism that uh, people will sometimes use to uh, justify their sanctimony. You know, so you have a lot of climbers out there that want to pretend that they know the will of the one true God and the way that you're supposed to climb and... They can be very, you know, it shows up in the sport versus trad versus bouldering, but then somebody sees a guy climbing with no rope, and it's just like this polarizing magnet for people who want to force their way of being onto others. It's like, uh, you know, you can you can bolt a uh, 5.7 X-rated horror show runout, which uh, forces every subsequent leader to expose themselves to danger, but some guy turns around and solos that same route, which is a decision what only affects him and not any subsequent ascensionists, that guy is definitely an asshole, and we need to fucking put him up in the stocks and throw vegetables at him. It, it's been pretty interesting for me because, you know, dealing with the uh, the lifelong depression and, uh, you know, recently it's actually been upgraded to sort of a, a bipolar 2 kind of thing. They were originally thinking that it was ADD and depression and now it's like this bipolar 2 kind of seems to explain all of it, including the uh, awkwardly long uh, messages and the fact that I'm just generally kind of socially awkward sometimes because I'm a little bit too uh, over the top with my excitement. <laughs> but... um yeah, so, you know, having all those harsh comments from uh, the internet crowd, you know, in one way you could say that I bring it upon myself because I throw myself out there, but, like, I mean, come on, it, nobody really deserves to be treated like that. You know, it's kind of uh, ridiculous, somebody who climbs, you know, moderate grades and is really stoked about their latest climb, they post up a video and nobody bats an eyelash, and if I do it, well, they're going to laugh if they see my broken, bloody body at the bottom of a moderate jug hall. <laughs> hey, hearing shit like that scared me. I mean, hearing people talk about stuff like that and tell me how useless and worthless I am because I'm choosing to solo things instead of climb the right way, it, uh, it was hard for me to shake off because, you know, self-doubt, self-hatred is kind of something I've always lived with and dealt with. And I internalized a lot of those things, you know, it, it, it um, wasn't anything worse than what I say to myself all the time. It was just for different reasons. Uh, but to, to hear that hatred for something that I, I really, truly enjoyed, and it's like, that's the thing, is I'm not going to stop doing it. I'm not going to stop doing it, and people, you know, some people say it's okay to do free soloing, but not to talk about it. And uh, where I come from, if somebody asks you a question, it's a polite thing to give them a straight and honest answer. So if somebody asks me, what did you do this weekend? What am I supposed to do? Lie to their face? The majority of my climbing is soloing. So if it would require me to dodge the question or give an outright lie to somebody, and I'm not comfortable doing that.
So it keeps circling back to this same thing where I keep uh, putting myself out there because it's just, it seems like the natural thing to do for me and people just want to chew through everything. But, um, you know, that's, that's another thing people say, you know, you're only soloing for the glory or for attention. And it's like, the attention's not good. It's just people fucking slaughtering you for the one thing that I like the most and to hell with you people. Fuck that. It just feels natural for me to share what I'm doing with my friends and with others. It's kind of a juxtaposition. Like I want to keep what I'm doing, but I don't want to get the comments. But then kind of where the magic started to happen was, you know, you get practiced with things. You have to be very calm. You have to develop a deep sense of equanimity. Whenever thoughts come through your head, you just have to kind of let them slide out and you just keep going and you don't really grasp onto them and pay attention to it. And that's kind of what the problem was with these, uh, you know, comments on the internet. It would lodge in my head and I would hold onto them and I would grasp onto them and just fixate on it. And like, my God, what am I going to do? You don't do anything. You just let it go and let it slide off, just like you do when you're soloing. You know, why would you treat it any differently? If there is a silver lining out of it, that's kind of, that's kind of it right there. Is at the end of the day, it's empowered me to be more fully me because you know, I got practiced at it. It's like falling. You know, at first falling is super, super scary. You know, you, shoot, I mean, when I was learning sport climbing, there was a period where I was afraid to fall underneath my bolt. The whole thing just terrified me. And slowly you get uh, acclimated to it and the, uh, the adrenaline spike goes away and you're able to think a little bit. As that started happening, I started thinking about it a little bit and I was able to calm down and just see it for what it was. Some asshole who's obviously not doing too well in his own life had to take the piss out of somebody else and it just happened to pull a trigger in me what set off a bunch of adrenaline and got my brain fixated on that same evil script that's been there all along, that you're worthless, you're nothing. Why do you even try? And since that script was already in there to begin with, that's what made it stick. Because they were saying what I already thought, what I already believed. And slowly over the years, bit by bit, I've been gaining practice at ignoring that voice just as much as I've gained practice ignoring theirs. And it's a chicken or the egg sort of thing, you know which one caused who, and it's just kind of this whole in the mix, in the mash. And in that thinking and wondering, you know, not only has it helped me overcome that little voice in my head, I mean, it's not really a voice in my head, I'm not hearing voices, but you know, it's like all too often for me, the completely random thing, what enters into my head is I fucking hate myself. And it's a weird thing to have the space to actually see that happening, and have the ability to step back and see that it's not me. It's this little mind virus, and uh, the more climbers I meet, the more I realize we're all the same. You would be amazed how many rock climbers I've heard tell me that climbing saved their life. Heroin addicts. Cutters. Alcoholics. So many people with depression. Bipolar. ADHD. All sorts of different maladies and conditions and people say climbing saved my life. It gave them that outlet, that space where the script would stop running. They don't hear it anymore. You never think you hate yourself when you're rock climbing. And uh, in the end, it has made me stronger in a lot of different ways. And none of them were very expected and it could very easily have torn me down instead. You know, if I was some character what didn't like soloing as much as I do, I probably just would have backed off and quit. 
trying to find some way to sweep it under the rug. I don't know, go out on a Wednesday morning or something, skip out of work so nobody sees me. That um, would not be super awesome. And it, uh, you know, honestly, it's just kind of, it's made my entire life a little bit better. Because it used to be when people uh, would find out that I was a soloist, it was almost like coming out of the closet. You know, in a lot of ways, I would say that climbing has saved my life. I felt bittersweet that he passed away, but I also do feel like wherever I go and I'm climbing, his spirit is there with me. And I feel his encouragement when I'm about to go and lead Trad or when I'm about to go climb a route that I feel like I'm scared and I can just hear him in his head and say, you know, risk is just something that you haven't taken yet. We were getting into a cadence where he was coming up and hanging out with us for every ice climbing season. and. I saw a change in him. I, I really did see him start to shine and feel full of life. Have you ever seen some idiot free soloing at the crag and wondered to yourself, just what in the hell is that guy thinking? Well, you're in the right place, my friend, because that guy is about to tell you exactly what he was thinking. So throw your rope in the closet where it belongs and grab a chalk bag for your sweaty, sweaty palms. The process is about to begin. Left me with Sunday off. No religious day of rest for me, though. My only religion is training. And if you'll ever meet me, you'll likely note that I'm somewhat of an evangelist. On a whim, I went down to Fruitwall at MFRP. Miller Fork. I knew there were a couple of routes there that I'd had on my mind after surveying that area earlier in my week of defeat. Most notably, Banana Hammock. At 100 feet long, it should play well to my strength of aerobic capacity and recovery climbing. Once again, and this just keeps happening and I've got no idea how it's this often, but I ran into fellow Chicago dwellers at the wall. We synced our plans, and I warmed up with a casual meander on Witness the Citrus, which I imagine will also be a good solo at some point in the future. After a short rest cycle, I turned around and fired off a flash ascent of Banana Hammock. The route is burly, straight off the ground, until you reach a no-handed rest straddling a saddle. The crux sequence is down low shortly thereafter at about 40 feet. I realize that's taller than the lead climbing walls of my local facility, but that's down low compared to 100 feet of climbing. Watching Carlos pull the crux move gave me some much needed beta. I'm pretty sure I'd have flubbed that section without washing him. The route actually uses this smudge of a crimp that I'd dismissed as obviously impossible. Obviously impossible. I can't tell you how many times I've said those words. In one instance, I tried a 513A just to prove to a friend that I couldn't do it. Turns out he was right and I was wrong. Much to my astonishment, I sent it on my second go. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot over? How in Bob's name did that happen? 
Another time I was cajoled into trying an obviously impossible problem at Vertical Endeavors, and much to my chagrin, I flashed it. During that same session, another obviously impossible problem went down on my fifth attempt. I guess in a way you could say it's a safety valve. If I can convince myself that it's possible after all of these mounting doubts, and there's plenty of extra margin in case I screw up on account of my natural inclination towards idiocy of the highest order. Paradoxically, I struggle with issues of self-esteem and particularly with believing in myself. It's hard to notice, though, given how excited I am about soloing. Luckily, my fingers don't seem to care one whit about what I think, and they perform their job well just to spite me. And possibly despite the statistics as well. Tom and company noted that the fact my scores were so low compared to my red point grade indicated a level of <clears throat> bodily economy, willingness to fight, and mental fitness that is unexpected from someone so new to the sport. New to the sport? Guys, come on, I've been soloing for a decade and climbing two years longer than that. Tom responded that he'd been coaching for over a decade, and uh, I had to concede the point. Relatively speaking, I'm a complete neophyte. Some folks have been at this for 30 or 40 years. So it was quite surprising to me when I first felt that crimp on Banana Hammock. It felt just good enough to be sure of the move. I let out an Adamandra-style power scream and latched the next bucket hold and clipped. But with 60 feet of climbing above me, it's not over till it's over. As a hold type, my greatest weakness would uh, definitely be handling slopers. Slopers and pinches, and <laughs> I don't know what it is about gym climbing, but they all seem to set slopey pinches. I'm useless. Completely shot. So, uh, if you want to come burn me off by, uh, warming up on my project, find me at the gym. Guarantee it'll happen. So, uh, there were a few slopers sprinkled up high on the root, but I managed to find the smallest divots right in the back of them to dig my fingers in, and then once I got through them, I was able to activate that aerobic fitness to recover. There'd be difficulties and recovery. Difficulties and recovery. All the way up the route, till I got to the very last section. Where my Red River nemesis awaited me. Pockets. Now, I'm not terribly weak at pockets, mind you. But the problem is that there's just so damned many of them. 17 potential holds and you only need three. I was well out from that resting jug. No time for hesitation now. So I pulled through, crossed over, and found a three-finger undercling from which to clip. Victory was mine! Ha 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 ha, that felt good. Uh, after, you know, getting beat down and failing on roots, being able to flash 12A here at the Red River Gorge, ah, oh, that felt good. It's like I'm getting back in the groove of things. I'm becoming me again. The weekend after my back-to-back -back solos of knuckle sauce and check your grip, I returned to the fruit wall. I'm not sure if it was on this particular weekend or perhaps another, but I got recognized at a Flying J gas station in Indiana by a pair of climbers. I guess the uh, raggedy car with a bunch of bumper stickers definitely gave away the fact that there was a climber on board. And when I stepped out with my... Uh, typical hat probably gave away that it was me. It doesn't happen often, but when it does, it feels quite weird being me for a moment. 
I still remember being the dumbfounded 19-year-old kid flailing on a 5'8 his first day in the climbing gym. I don't mind it too much, though. It's beneficial from a utilitarian's perspective. If folks recognize me, then they're less likely to freak out if they catch me soloing somewhere. So instead of thinking, holy shit, it's some random idiot, they'll be thinking something more like, holy shit, it's this specific idiot. I've heard he does this. And then everybody chills out and nobody cares, and that's much better than people freaking out. Again, I was recognized at the parking lot, thanks to my tie-dye climbing uniform. Uh, I'm hoping this is going to help me kind of desensitize people a little bit faster so we get to that point where nobody cares a little bit quicker. And when I arrived at the fruit wall, once again, I met with friendly climbers from the Chicago Town crew. There is a lot of fucking mojo in this place. Like, how in the hell are y'all everywhere down in the red every time I go down there, even though it's a bob-damned seven-hour drive each way. That means the round trip eats 14 hours out of your week. That's almost a part-time job. I see your cars covered in bumper stickers every single Friday driving down and every single Sunday driving back up to town. It never ceases to amaze me. Back in the southeast, people would complain about a two-hour drive to the crag. And here we are, hucking seven at a time. It's just bonkers. So again, with a little bit of crag diplomacy and I queued in line to warm up on my usual, witness the citrus, 511C. But uh, afterward, everybody was busy belaying each other and Man, nobody got time for that, so I rope soloed Banana Hammock. I used a stick clip to clip the first two bolts with my tied-off knots to build my anchor and practice the moves on the way up. Pulling that crux on its quarter-inch three-finger crimp was intimidating while rope soloing, as rope soloing in this manner means trusting an unattended Grigri clipped into my belay loop to catch me if I fell. But this time, instead of the raw power that I used during my flash attempt, I felt the balance, and it was good. I ran out of my 60 meter rope about one bolt from the top. While it's enough to uh, lead the route on 60 meters, all the uh, faff that I had tied into my anchor down low ran me out. So I wasn't able to practice those pockets up high, and I lowered from this bolt. Shortly after, I was able to score another belay, and the climb went smoothly. I was able to chill my way through those pockets this time. After a decent rest and cheering other folks on their projects, I went for a quick jog to warm up my uh, quickly freezing fingers and then went for a double lap. Draws were hung on both Witness the Citrus and Banana Hammock. And the only thing better than climbing is, of course, like, uh, you know, climbing is, is the coolest thing in the universe. Second only to, like, oh yeah, you know what I mean. More climbing, obviously! So... I fired both roots back to back. I had witnessed the citrus and then pulled my rope immediately and went over to Banana Hammock. And, uh, you know, first I ambled through the 100-foot jug-infested 20-degree overhang of Witness the Citrus. And then after that, I moved over to the equally steep Banana Hammock without even pausing to untie my rope. Even though this was my third lap of 12A for the day, even though I was fatigued from having climbed citrus immediately before, I sent with ease. 
<laughs> this is going to be fun. With my work for the day concluded, I decided I was finished climbing, and I ambled back a bit earlier than the rest so I could get an early sleep and recover well to perform the solo that following morning. Mind you, all this rehearsal was performed chalkless, with my feet clad in my favorite pair of untied mythos. Those shoes have seen miles upon miles of climbing. Gives me pause to wonder what stories they'd tell if they could speak. Listen, y'all, you're not gonna believe what this motherfucker did to us. <laughs> As of this particular moment, my toe was just starting to become visible through a small hole in the front of my right shoe. Perfect conditions for practice. The next morning was chilled, so I woke up deliberately late to pull a uh, California Alpine start, if you catch my drift. By the time I arrived at the wall, it had already warmed to about 40 degrees. First order of business, though, was stomping around to the top and hanging my ropes, both the knotted hand rope and my climbing rope. The scramble up was straightforward to identify because there was a very obvious gully between the fruit wall and portal sector. There was even a knotted rope pre-hung in place to assist the passage. I managed to on-site the approach to the top of Banana Hammock even though I'd never been up there. And I was able to do so by divining the location of the very obvious hourglass crack and roughly estimating the distance to the top of Banana Hammock from there. It's only one route over. So I lassoed a tree with my rope and wrapped backwards towards the edge. On the nearest solid tree to the precipice, I fixed my hand rope in place and draped it across toward the anchor. Lowering off, I discovered bomber jugs right there at the anchor. Turns out my uh, daft three-finger undercling beta was completely unnecessary and a total waste of energy. These jugs looked as if they would allow a traditional top-out, however, the reason I hadn't spotted them before is because they were among the few holds on the wall to get soaked after a short spot of rain. Currently, they were a mix of frozen and wet. Neither condition is particularly conducive to my mission. So I let my hand rope remain in place and wrote that top on it off as yet another project left for another day. I wrapped down the wall clipping my rope into a carabiner on each bolt to minimize swing potential and to allow hangdogging if I wanted to refine beta. I rested briefly, then top rope soloed the route while removing the carabiners and managing my own slack. In the midst of that crux down low, I spontaneously discovered a new way to shift my weight on a couple of heel hooks. I was able to relax and shake off. Suddenly, this three-move crux became a one-move wonder as I found I could shake off and relax on the two holds immediately before that crux move. And so it came to feel casual, as did the slopers and the pockets up high. Subtle shifts of my own gravity, finding new sequence, finding your balance point better, discovering new holds that have just enough of a positive lip. All these things add up to the pre-flight checklist. I set my usual timer for 20 minutes rest and contemplated life. It's a damn tall route to stare up at, and that overhang is unrelenting. Pulling on to do the solo, I didn't feel any of the usual anxieties from earlier in the season. I had this wall to myself today, with not another soul to be found, 
and the systems that I'd used for practicing and warming up were starting to feel old hat. Plus, I'd had the opportunity to practice flipping the switch from zero to solo several times in the past weeks. I was in the flow of the season at this point. My solo space was developed and feeling prime. The initial section off the deck was a rude awakening as always. The first move was a bicep intense dead point which led to bouldery moves thereafter, but I felt secure, solid, and competent. I only needed moments of rest at the no hand no foot rest before the crux, then I pulled through the jug rail without even cutting my feet by tap dancing them across hidden holds where my eyesight couldn't reach. Then I made long pulls to half-inch crimps and set up for that devious crux move. If I felt any anxieties, I didn't notice them because there just wasn't enough time. So I reached up and snatched that suddenly beefy-feeling quarter-incher. I pulled through to the jug and completely lost my composure as I yelled out, Holy fuck! That was casual! I mean, not that I was expecting it to be heinous. But I sure wasn't expecting to feel quite this trivial. And that was quite a welcome surprise. Immediately, I knew that I'd have a good relationship with this route and that it would be a favorite to return to for future enjoyment and practice. I conserved energy as I ambled through some more moderate 510 terrain, briefly shaking on any jug that I found before reaching a solid knee bar midway up the wall. As I rested there, Wolves from Down Like Silver came up in my playlist and started playing through my earbuds. I paused here and marinated in the moment. It offered a rare opportunity for somber contemplation of death, life, the universe, and everything. Friends gained, friends lost. Life is as long as it is short. Minutes pass slow, and the years go fast. Fairly quickly, you start to realize the impermanence of everything around you, including that brief spark in time that we call life. Reviewing the footage later, I realize that this ascent took 18 minutes. There was plenty of time to stop and think, and that bears out in the timing of the tracks that I played and the thoughts which I marinated in. You see, it's absolutely imperative to think when you do these things. Gravity is heavy, and so is the responsibility we have to make sure that we come home, time and time again. Folks are alarmed when they see free soloing because they think I could die. And the fact, frankly, is that I could. But life is an inherently dangerous sport. The only safety any of us have lies within our ability to make competent decisions. And that's what I do. I make a lot of decisions to mitigate risk because I do want to come home. Even so, sometimes your number comes up and there's nothing you can do about it. The fact of the matter is that there's nothing particularly safe about a human hanging from a rope 50 feet off the ground, no matter your style of climbing. You fuck up badly enough, you will die. What in the world? This guy's fucking insane. He's soloing, climbing this route naked, without a rope. He's out of his damn mind.
While it's obviously imperative that I think while practicing my lonesome dance with gravity, that doesn't make me unique in any way. We all have to think. It's our best form of life insurance. Rather than shirk the discomfort of these thoughts mid-route, I instead stayed with them and used them as a focus for meditation of sorts while exploring the inner resources of my mind, managing my heart rate. I allowed irrational anxieties to float across the sky of my mind like clouds drifting across the sun in an otherwise empty firmament. They did not carry my attention away, but rather... They simply just were. I allowed them their own space to be beside my attention rather than competing for it. So, take a moment, if you will, and hold your attention to the music. And when your attention inevitably strays, just bring it back to the music. And in that way, you'll have a small piece of what I felt in this ascent. At least he's not going to get a farmer's tan. Even though I still have no idea what I'm doing, things are happening. And if you'd like to help out and support this podcast, please check out patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, where you can sponsor us for as little as $1 per episode. It really helps keep this podcast going, and I'm so grateful for all of your help. Special shout out to Cameron McAlpine because he makes this thing sound good. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. A huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. And a big thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for supporting this podcast and the messages that we share. Gnarly Nutrition supports a community of vulnerability and equality and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the planet. LA Outdoor personal care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. And thanks to Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet. Until next time.